Join me in singing number 405 from the Trinity Psalter hymnal, number 405, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord. We're going to sing uh, the first, just the first four stanzas of that hymn as we stand together to sing, number 405. Our reading from God's Word tonight comes from Ephesians chapter 5. Would you turn there uh, with me? Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be just focusing on uh, just a few verses tonight, really. Verses 25 to 27, Ephesians chapter 5. This is God's holy Word for our instruction, for our, our growth and maturity and righteousness. So let's pay close attention to these words tonight. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, "'Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy.'" and without blemish. We're going to end our reading there this evening. Well, a minister was once asked to conduct the wedding of a young couple that he knew from his church. And on the day of of the wedding, as they were standing together up on the front of the sanctuary, as the minister began his message, uh, he turned to the bride and he said, I'm sorry to tell you this, because I know you've put a lot of expense into this day. You've put a lot of time into this day. You're standing before us in in a beautiful white dress that no doubt was not cheap. But I need to tell you right off the bat, the start of this message, that today is not about you. Today is not about you. And the groom began to chuckle a little bit as he 
It saw his bride-to-be's face uh, fall somewhat at that information from the pastor. The pastor noticed that, and he turned to the groom, and he said, you better be quiet because it's not about you either. And, of course, he went on to explain what he meant by that, that this day, their wedding day, really wasn't about them. He went on to, to help them understand that, that human marriage isn't so much about the bride and the groom and the life that they're going to live together united in the institution of marriage, but it's, it's more about a great mystery, a profound secret that, that human marriage is, is really about the relationship, the love between Jesus and His bride, the church. In fact, human marriage finds its meaning, it discovers its significance only in that relationship between Christ and the church and what it means to be united to Jesus Christ. And, and here in these few verses that I just read, the Apostle Paul um, describes in such beautiful terms this relationship between Jesus and His church. And, and this is a relationship, he says, of self-giving, self-sacrificing love on the part of Jesus for a bride who is so often wayward, a bride so often soiled by sin so often misguided by worldly affections. And yet, Paul says, in the eyes of Jesus, she is exquisitely beautiful. What Paul says about the church here in these few verses might surprise us. Perhaps as I read these words, you were wondering to yourself, is that really what the church is like? Is the church really that wonderful and glorious? Isn't there uh, quite a bit of sin, quite a bit of strife and disunity among us? Aren't there those in our midst with which we struggle to get along from time to time? We have here in this passage a call for us to learn to see the church as Jesus sees her, as precious as holy, as, as beautiful, as sanctified, as a bride to die for. And that's important for us tonight because really only when we see the church of which we are a part, the way Jesus sees her, can we really understand and appreciate the gospel. Only then can we really embrace the call to live for our bridegroom. And so I want to focus, first of all, on the, the spiritual reality of what Paul says about the church here in these few verses. As I said before, Paul's description of the church here might leave us with a bit of cognitive dissonance. What I mean by that is that what Paul says about the church here doesn't seem to agree with the church as it sometimes appears to be in our experience. Paul describes the church in such great, grandiose terms here. She's sanctified and consecrated. She's cleansed. She's splendorous and holy and so on and so forth. And, and we're tempted to respond, Paul, which church are you describing? And to be sure, we would say this is the way the church should be. This is the way we'd like the church to be. It's, it's a picture of the ideal church, a pastor's dream, perhaps. 
But you might say, my congregation doesn't fit that description. Sometimes from our perspective, the, the church, whether it's our local church or the church around the globe, doesn't appear very glorious, very beautiful. Just a quick scan of church history reveals that ever since the church fell into sin in the garden, we've had the tendency to prostrate ourselves before other gods, disobey God's commandments. We've, the church has often supplemented God's worship with things that He does not desire. We see that distortion of the fall in our own local congregations as well. We, we see a lack of zeal for preaching and community. We lament that sometimes there are disgruntled people among us who don't care for the leadership of the church. Sometimes we find strife and, and disunity in the church over minor disagreements like what color to paint the church or whether or not Bible jokes should be found in the church newsletter, things like that. We might say, Paul, if you had used the word stubborn and, and petty and factioned and irritable to describe the church, well, I might agree with that. And it's easy for us to sort of take a critical step away from the church and zero in on its remaining problems and, and sort of doubt whether it's really worth belonging to this such an inconsistent group. And ministers sometimes fall into that camp. We can so easily as ministers adopt an, an Elijah complex. Oh, Lord, your people have forsaken your ways. They don't appreciate my preaching. They're childish. They're slow to learn. They're irritable. And I, even I only, am left, and they're seeking my life as well. But our Lord Jesus would rebuke us for those kinds of thoughts. As he said to Elijah, what are you doing here? Oh, you have little faith. What are you doing here? Don't you see what I've done for my bride? Don't you see what I've done for her? You see, really this passage is a call to us to, to have greater eyes of faith, to see what Christ's immense love for His church has truly accomplished for her, for us. You mustn't miss the wonder of this great love of Christ for His church in giving Himself up for her. What did He do for us? He came to this, this broken, dirty world, and He veiled Himself in our own flesh. He suffered at the hands of wicked and unjust men. He bore the full rate, weight of God's wrath upon Himself for the sin of His people. He poured Himself out completely as the once-for-all sin offering simply because of His unconditional love for sinners like you and me. Do you see how great His love is for His church? Jesus gave Himself up to death for a dead woman. You notice that Christ didn't choose a wife the way most men do. He didn't go out and look for an attractive wife, a faithful woman who already had her act together. He set His unconditional attention on an ugly, broken, dead woman who could not even lift a finger to respond to His call. 
Jesus loved his bride. He gave himself up on the cross for her, not because she was attractive, not because she was worthy of love, but in order to make her beautiful, in order to make her holy and make her faithful. That's what Paul says earlier in Ephesians in chapter 1. He says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, not because we were holy and blameless already, but that we should be, that he might make us holy and blameless before him. Our bridegroom set his electing love upon us because he intends to make us beautiful and holy for his own glory. We read in in the very next chapter, Ephesians 2, verse 4, that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. That's what Jesus has done for his bride his church, each and every one of you. He gave himself up to death on the cross to justify his chosen bride, to bring his church into an exclusive relationship with his heavenly Father as the holy people of a new covenant. Before we were attractive, before we were wise, before we were faithful or beautiful, God chose us and He breathed new life into us by His Holy Spirit and God gave us to His Son to be His bride, His most precious possession forever and ever. If this is what Christ has done for His bride, who could bring a charge against her? It's God who justifies. If, it's, if this is what Jesus has done for His church, if He's tied Himself to His church and called her His own and put His seal of approval upon her and given her a ring of engagement in the Holy Spirit, who are we to separate ourselves from such a, a wonderful bride? Now, you might ask, isn't this vision that that Paul gives us of the church as spotless and without wrinkle or stain, dwelling in purity and unity. Isn't that really a a vision of the future church? Uh, A picture of the the church in, in its consummate reality that's still to come when we all enter resurrection glory, when Christ returns to bring His bride to the heavenly wedding feast. Isn't there still a lot in the church, in each one of us as well, that's not yet cleansed or sanctified. Well, to be sure, to be sure. But but we mustn't miss what Paul says here. What he says about the church is truly a spiritual reality now because all of these descriptors of Jesus' church are derived from, are secured by Christ's consecrating work on the cross once and for all. You see, on the cross, Jesus accomplished this washing for His bride. On the cross, Jesus assured that what He declares about His bride will one day certainly be a consummated reality. And He sent us His Holy Spirit as a down payment, assuring us that what Jesus says about His church is true, it's lasting, it's irrevocable, it's never going to change. We must not be so blinded by unbelief. We must not be so blinded by doubt 
that we fail to miss or accept these spiritual realities about the church. We must not think of ourselves higher than Christ, that we hesitate or fail to view justified sinners as they really are in Jesus Christ, the precious possession of our Lord, despite the inconsistencies that remain. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in summary. He says, Jesus saw her, the church, in her rags. He saw her in her wilderness, but He loved her. That's the height of the doctrine of salvation. He loved us not because of anything in us. He loved us in spite of what was in us while we were yet sinners. He loved the ungodly while we were yet enemies. In all our unworthiness and vileness, He loved us. He loved the church not because she was glorious and beautiful. No, but that He might make her such. These are the glorious spiritual realities for those who belong to the precious bride, the church of Jesus Christ. When Jesus looks at His church, He sees a bride whose status is secure. She's His, and that's never going to change but she still needs to be cleaned up. She still needs to be readied for her bridegroom. As we heard this morning, Jesus doesn't do a half job. He finishes the job. And Jesus isn't finished with us yet either. And even while we've been delivered from guilt and sin and, and judgment for all time because of Christ giving Himself up on the cross to death, Jesus isn't done. It's His ultimate goal to to deliver us as His church from sin. It's His goal to clean us up. It's His goal to, to make us pure and holy in the full, in the consummate sense. That's why Paul writes here. He says, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, gave Himself up for her. Why? What's Christ's ultimate goal in giving Himself up for His church? verse 26, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. What's His goal? That He might present her, show her off to the world in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. We are free of guilt and the judgment of sin to be sure, but there's still a need for spot removal in the church. Paul said. There's still a need for the the wrinkles to be ironed out, and that's Jesus' aim. That's His intention. He, He wants to beautify His bride. He wants to prepare her for the wedding feast. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. We have in Ezekiel 16 a remarkable picture of God's marriage to the people of Israel, as it were. And it's a a beautiful foreshadowing of of what Jesus ultimately would come to do for His church in in marrying, as it were, His bride, the church. I just want to read uh, verses 3 through 9 of Ezekiel 16 here. Again, this is God's marriage to His people. Verse 3, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. 
And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you, And saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. Then I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. This is a beautiful picture of what God, in particular through His Son, Jesus Christ, uh, has done and will do for His bride. We were outcasts. We were lying in a bloody, dirty heap, and the Son of God walked by, and He saw us, and He says, she's the one. She's the one. I found my beloved. I have found my wife, whom I will wed and take care of forever. God the Father gave His Son a bride who was dead, and Jesus said, I will happily die to give her new life so that she will grow up and mature and flourish and fill the whole earth. I will wash her. I will make a covenant with her. I will be a faithful husband to her, and I will make her into a faithful, obedient wife. And how does Jesus accomplish all this? How does He accomplish this cleansing, this this sanctification, this spot removal, this wrinkle removal of His church? What instrument does He use? He washes, He consecrates, He sets His bride apart, Paul says here, by a washing with the Word. We must not miss that, that our growth in holiness takes place as the Holy Spirit applies the truth of God's Word to our lives through faithful preaching and teaching. The Word is God's chosen instrument by which He intends to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. It's through the preaching of the Word that He's empowering His church to do battle against sin. It's through the Word that He is enabling us to to pursue holiness and righteousness in our lives. It's in the Word that God assures His church that He intends to present His bride without wrinkle or blemish on the day of His coming. It's through the preaching of the gospel that the Lord is daily at work smoothing out our wrinkles and spots so that we are daily advancing in holiness. And that's certainly humbling to hear what the Lord is doing in our midst through the Word, but we also ought to be greater motivated to come faithfully under the preaching of that Word. 
It's what the Holy Spirit is using in our midst here to prepare us for our bridegroom on the last day. And yet, so often, we neglect the Word of Christ. Although it's the primary tool, the primary instrument by which He is solving the problems in our church. Are there problems in our congregation? Certainly. Is there occasionally pettiness and disunity and faithlessness? Of course. And that's why we must come whenever we can to hear the whole counsel of God preached from the Word because God intends to perfect us by a spiritual washing through the Word of Christ. That's what Jesus prayed to His heavenly Father about the church. He prayed, O God, sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth. God will answer His Son's prayer. But do we believe, do we hold that that preaching, the Word is God's chosen instrument that He is going to use to answer His Son's prayer to sanctify His bride? We must make ample use of this divine instrument by which Jesus intends to present His bride as cleansed and splendorous and beautiful and holy on the day of His coming. Sanctified, cleansed, beautiful, holy. That's how Jesus regards His church, His bride. And if that's how Jesus sees His church, because of what He's done for her, because of what He's still doing in her, if that's how Jesus sees His church, how should that change the way we think of one another as members together of that church? Well, it means a whole host of things, but it certainly means If we view the church as Jesus views her, then we will see one another, each and every one of us, as a precious member of Christ's bride. We will value one another. We won't take account of status or wealth or position. We won't uh, descend into our cliques at the end of worship instead of looking for the outsider. We're going to value one another as Christ values each of us, not discriminating about whom we will or will not associate. If we see the church as Jesus sees her, we will be unconditionally patient with one another in our shortcomings, in our eccentricities. If we see the church as Jesus sees her, we will be quick to forgive one another when we wrong one another. We will be quick to pursue peace as far as it depends on us. We will be slow to anger and unwilling to hold a grudge. In other words, we will love in an unconditional way the way Christ first loved us. If we love the church The way Jesus loves His church, we will want to see the church grow. We will want to see her flourish. We will want what is best for the church. And so she will be one of our greatest thoughts every single day. And we will spur one another on to greater faithfulness and zeal and good works.
when we see the church as Jesus sees her, we cannot help but feel greatly loved. And in turn, we cannot help but love one another greatly. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this beautiful description of Christ's love for His church, shown most wonderfully in Jesus' willingness to give Himself up to death on the cross in order to present His bride as pure and radiant and glorious without spot or wrinkle on the last day. We're so grateful for our Lord's eager and unquenchable desire to see His bride perfected. And we know that He will not be satisfied until He has made her so. He will not be satisfied until the whole universe rejoices in His bride and admires her for her beauty. So, Lord, knowing that You have done that for us and are doing it in us by Your Holy Spirit, we pray that You'd help us to share Your passion for Your church. May she mean as much to us. And may we willingly and joyfully sacrifice our comfort and our time and our energy to see this great bride perfected in Christ. We thank You, Lord, for making each of us living members of Your church. And may we cling in faith to the promises of Your Word and seek Your grace daily as we wait for You to sanctify us and prepare us for the day of Your appearing. In Christ's name we pray, amen.